Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. I mean, you have to make a lot of bad work and allow yourself to make ugly paintings to get to the stuff that, that is really you. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Learn to Paint podcast, where we talk with artists and teachers about how to get better at painting. I'm Kellyanne Powers, and this week I talk with mixed media artist Jane Davies. Davies has lived many lives, including as a potter and freelancer and author, and about 10 years ago she committed to painting and teaching full-time. In this conversation, we talk less about specific materials and more about ways to approach your work. Ways to approach your work when you're just starting out, when you're feeling uninspired, when you're having trouble finishing a painting, lots of great ideas for how to approach your painting practice. Jane approaches her work very differently than the past two artists I've talked to, and I love that. It shows that there are as many ways of working as there are artists. As always, check out learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode three for links to Jane's classes and the vocab list for this week. While you're there, subscribe to the newsletter for weekly learning to paint resources. Now, let's jump in. Hi, Jane. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kelly. Great to be here. When you decided to make art your primary focus, what was the biggest challenge you ran into? Was it skills? Was it mindset? You know, I just didn't even think of it like that. I just thought, I'm going to try to make art and teach. Just to see what that was like, I gave myself some time to find teaching gigs. And actually, I made a promise to myself at that time that I would not show or try to sell my work for a while, like until I really felt comfortable and confident as to who I am as an artist, because I really didn't want that kind of pressure of sales or other people looking at it to influence where I went with the work. So the goal wasn't like, okay, now I'm just going to make art and make a living at it. The goal was I'm going to teach because I had done some teaching and I knew it was something I could do and had a lot of interest in kind of learning to do it better. So it didn't feel like it didn't feel like a major challenge in kind of the normal ways. It wasn't like quitting a high paying corporate job and, you know, trying to be a watercolorist. It wasn't that at all. Do you think people jump too early into wanting to show their work? And how do you think that affects them as artists? I do actually get a lot of kind of requests for professional practices information from people whom I think aren't ready, which tells me that that yeah, there are some people that I think jump to it too soon. I think a lot of people come to art with the assumption that the point is to make objects and sell them, or that that's when you'll know you've made it. And I've even had requests from like almost beginners saying, okay, well, how do you make art? And then how do you sell it? I mean, not that simply, but some version of that, where they're thinking of making the art and selling the art in the same sentence. And to me, that they're really two different hats. You know, making art, art practices are different from art business practices to me. And, and I really work hard to keep them separate. And I encourage people to do that when, when they're asking, 
So how long did you work exclusively on building your skills and what did that process look like? I didn't realize how little I knew. So it wasn't that hard. You know, it's like I had been doing freelance work for about 10 years. And so I, I knew how to paint. Like, you know, I knew my, my style in the freelance work was more illustrative. So I didn't have any intimidation with materials. I mean, I had written a few books by then on art making. And so I had talked with a lot of artists and I had had a lot of inspiration. So yeah, I guess I just kind of picked up where that left off. For you, materials seem really important. And I'm making some assumptions here, but it seems like you learn a lot through materials. How important is it to know your materials? If you don't love the material, you wouldn't be painting. I actually had someone recently say, well, I really want to learn to do watercolors like this. I want to do watercolor landscapes. And I said, well, I could get you a, a set of watercolors and you could just kind of fool around with them, see what they do. And she said, oh, I don't want to bother with that. I just want to make the watercolor landscapes. Like that's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. If you so, so obviously she is not going to paint. I mean, if you don't love the materials, you're not going to go there. I mean, God, I would love to play the violin beautifully, but am I willing to practice every day. No, I've never played the violin. So to the extent that you're not going to do it if you don't love the materials, because it's so involved with materials, then they're kind of essential. I'm going to go off on a tangent for a second. A lot of people do digital work, digital art, because there are some really great applications for that. And some of my students do digital work as well as work in materials. Some people do fabulous digital work. I'm not that interested in doing it myself because, A, I've done a ton of it in doing freelance work. You know, I would paint stuff by hand, scan it all, put it all together digitally. So it's not, so I don't mean to diss it as any sort of less valid. It's just that doesn't interest me because there aren't materials involved. So for me, the, material, the materials are important. And I guess I do find myself being pretty fluid in my painting practice because I understand the viscosity and the transparency and the pigment load of all the paints I'm using. I understand the range of marks I can make with a certain kind of crayon. And that's because I pay attention and I'm interested. And so I noticed that in a lot of my students who have less experience with materials, I mean, they may come from a different art background and they're kind of new to paint. It's a big leap. It seems like it's a big learning leap, but I've been sort of learning it over time while I was a potter and then while I was a designer. And so even though I've only been kind of doing this painting and teaching thing full time for, I want to say about nine years, I started my painting practice in the early 90s. So that's a lot longer. Do you think it's important to work only with professional paints? Mm, no. It's important to feel pretty free with your materials. So if you're intimidated by the expense of paint, I have some suggestions on, on my material, my favorite materials page on my website for some student grade paints that are decent. When people come to a workshop though, I want them to invest. And I particularly specify that you should bring your main colors in professional grade paints, have that supplemented by student grade paints. But there's all kinds of practices that you can do with even cheap craft paints and tempera and crayons. I've recently been experimenting with kind of kid art materials, gel crayons, and there are these tempera sticks 
and some other pigment, other materials like that, that they don't have a lot of pigment in them. They're not very opaque, but boy, you can get a lot of mileage out of them if you just want to make images. And so I really encourage people to get materials that you feel really free with. Like if you feel like every paintbrush stroke is going to cost you 15 bucks, you're not going to experiment very much. What's the danger sort of long-term in feeling scared to use your materials? Oh, that you just won't find your way as an artist. I mean, if you can't experiment, if you can't give yourself that freedom, I wouldn't call it a danger, but that's kind of the risk. And it depends on your interest. If you just want to learn how to do this particular kind of painting and do it well or do it in the style of your guru, there's lots of people teaching like that. And if that's kind of where you want to go, you can do that without, quote, wasting materials. Most people, I think, don't do that. They study with different teachers who can teach them their style, and then they take other workshops with other teachers and, um, you know, learn from each one. But I have met people who really take pride in learning to paint like so-and-so. And if that's the goal, then that's a more straightforward way of kind of reaching your goal with as little waste as possible. But it's a different practice than just learning to be your own artist. For your painting, do you have a general process you work through and what does it look like? Oh, I have a whole bunch of them and they're all really fun and none of them have a much of a plan associated with them. Recently, I've been doing this thing called the 30-minute exercise. And I've done exercises like this in the past, the five minute painting. This is the 30 minute exercise. And it's a way that you, you just show up and make marks for 30 minutes. And so what I've been doing is putting three sheets of 19 by 24 Bristol on the wall. And then I have a bunch of paint and a bunch of collage material. And I just make marks one after the other. And they can be paint or collage or drawing. And there's a little drying time involved. So I like stop the clock and get out the hairdryer. The point isn't to make beautiful pieces. The point is to get further than I would on the pieces if... I didn't have the rule to keep making marks. So there's like no hesitation, no standing back and wondering what it needs or what it should look like. Or, you know, I'm not looking at compositional issues until I'm about 10 layers in. And how mm -hmm. important has that been to you as an artist to find ways to push yourself? Oh, it's, it's the whole thing. It's the whole purpose. So yeah, you're right. I mean, this 30 minute thing is just kind of a recent thing, but generally I'll sort of have some kind of visual puzzle I want to explore, some kind of visual vocabulary that, that I want to play with. And so over the course of at least three pieces, if they're large, or 20 if they're small, I'll start playing with them. And the kind of more or less defined vocabulary I want to play with or issue I want to look at doesn't at all kind of dictate what the pieces will look like, unless it's a color thing. Like if I really want to see what, what it's like just working in black and white, I kind of know that the pieces are going to be black and white. But yeah, and in collage, sometimes there's like particular things I want to work with, especially if I'm doing just pure collage without paint. And recently I'm playing around with text because it's really fun to sort of see what shapes letters can make. And then the enormous variety of text you can find in magazines and junk mail and then, of course, you can make your own and print it out. And so that's been kind of fun. A lot of artists, especially when they're starting out, feel the need to paint a painting. 
something that they can put on a wall, something that they can show a friend. And painting a finished piece is different than painting to experiment or painting to explore. And it feels like when I think about how you work, the goal of being a finished piece feels so limiting. Yeah. Even even those of us who have been doing it a while feel the pressure to make finished paintings. And so for me, it's a constant challenge to let that go. And part of my process is setting up circumstances in which the finished piece isn't the goal. Like this 30 minute thing. It's like, if I've made marks for 30 minutes, I have been successful. If everything that I made looks like, you know, crap, it doesn't matter. That's not part of the goal. Usually it looks pretty interesting and it looks different than it would if I was working differently. So yeah, I, even with students that have done this 30 minute thing and people that are commenting on it, from some people, I'm getting the sense that they're still very attached to the finished image. Like, oh, I couldn't possibly finish X, Y, or Z in 30 minutes. So yeah, I think most people are kind of attached to the to the finished image and I am too, but I just make it a real conscious effort to to get away from that. And I do find terrific rewards in doing these sort of process-oriented pieces. Well, and you talk about the challenge of staying present. Is that one of the ways that you sort of force yourself to stay present? Absolutely. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Because this is just a hypothesis. I think that if you have the finished painting in your head, you're less present to what's going on in front of you. So I think for a lot of people, including me, having an idea of what the painting should look like or what I want it to look like, it gets in the way. And then this thing of timing something or making myself do a practice continuously without hesitation for you know the five minutes or until it's the paper's covered or whatever it is, really makes me pay attention. You talk about your process being spontaneous, and that's different than random. For you, what's the difference between spontaneous and random or unthinking in the way that you approach or a student approaches their work? Oh, that's a good question because it comes up a lot and it also gets misquoted a lot. So the difference between a spontaneity and intuitive way of working and random is you're paying attention. So random is like, oh, just fling the paint anywhere. And spontaneous, like fling the paint, notice what it does, fling some other paint and notice that. Just noticing every second. And the intuitive part, I think it's very much like language. We learn language and we learn the rules of language and we learn grammar and all that stuff, but we speak it intuitively. And in learning another language, it's a lot of sort of learning and practice and learning and practice. But after a lot of practice, you speak it intuitively. I think it's the same with visual language or that's my experience with it. So when I'm working, I am really noticing all the little visual things, all the little bits of abstract content that are happening on the painting as I'm working on it. And I could articulate those verbally, but it would take too long and it's a different language and I don't have to. But when someone asks me to like slow down and tell me what you're thinking as you're painting, I can do it. It does slow it down. So I'm not, I'm still just challenged by teaching that. Because I can't just say, oh, here's how you do it. I think it's a matter of really learning to see and then practice seeing. So one thing I have students do a lot is make observations about their work. 
And many people find that really difficult. And I find it difficult to do in my own work to someone else because I've done it on this kind of visual, intuitive, articulated, but visually articulated level. And then standing back and looking at it, I can articulate what's there visually, but it takes some effort. And um, I get the impression that, that a lot of people aren't really asked to look at their work and make observations in the way that I require. <laughs> I'm a bit of a hard ass as a teacher. Anyone will tell you. <laughs> because I'll look at it and say, oh, well, it's too this, or oh, it doesn't have a focal point, or it doesn't, it needs that. So they're basically saying like kind of what, where they see it falling short, or they'll say, well, I like this part, but I don't like that part. And that's not enough. Neither of those things are observations. They're kind of evaluations. And what I want them to get at and what I want me to get at is, oh, I notice that I've got two shapes that are very similar and very similar size. Or, oh, all my elements are about the same size. I got this pattern over here. I got this shape over there, this group of lines over here. They're all the same size. Or, oh, I see I've got similar values all over the piece. Or, I've got a really wide range of values or, you know, I have really big, thick, expressive lines and I have these beautiful little delicate lines. Ugh, I love that. Or something that kind of describes the visual content. And the other thing I ask people to do and ask myself to do is observe my responses. So it's different than just saying I like it. It's saying that big juicy line against that little delicate line really jazzes me. Like, yeah, that really kind of gets it going for me. So things like that, that observation, my hypothesis is that learning to see and articulate what you're seeing in a neutral way is a way to practice getting that to be intuitive so that you can kind of see your painting or your work evolve, noticing those things, but not getting judgmental about them. And that is the kind of intuitive that becomes intuitive. And it sounds like those are two separate processes that when you're in the painting be in the painting, but then also make sure you step back from the painting and think about the painting. Not quite, because the observation isn't like a visual analysis. It's a bit of a, it's hard to say because it is actually a little bit of analysis, isn't it? But I guess there's all this kind of art speak that, oh, this balances that and this, oh, I can't remember what all the words are, but there's a bunch of words that, oh, there's movement and energy okay, that's great. But it's not an observation of visual content. That's kind of an expressive response to it, an emotional response. And so I really try to get people to be able to make observations that are just about the visual content, which isn't to say that that's how we experience art as viewers, but as artists, as making the stuff, we need to know our ingredients. We need to be noticing what those are as, as they're happening. So yeah, looking at a piece is different than making a piece. But when you're making a piece, if you can see, oh yeah, oh yeah, I love that little contrast. Oh, look at that texture over there. Oh yeah, okay, that line. And eh, now, now let me just cover that up. Okay, like that's my sort of inner monologue when I'm working. And it's, ooh, ah, eh, mm, and, you know, cover that up, add some, oh yeah, look at that. But it is in terms of like sameness and difference, like contrast and degrees of contrast of various things you know, color, value, quality of line, et cetera. So you're absolutely right that the looking at a piece is, is a whole lot different than 
making a piece. But ultimately, I want that observation thing to become intuitive. Along some of these same lines, what's the biggest challenge that you see your students facing in their work? Too much judgment. I guess I feel like I'm I'm getting I'm starting to get free of that myself, but I totally get it. <laughs> I've been there. I do that occasionally. That kind of inner critic shows up and says, eh. But I think it yeah, that that's probably the kind of self-criticism and too quick to judge before they've even like observed what's going on. And I think for women, that's even more so because culturally we're taught to be sort of more self-effacing. And so I think for women, especially women of an older generation, even than me, it's even more so, you know, I have hope that younger generations don't have that kind of self-criticism so, so much ingrained, but it really is. It takes a lot to say, no, I'm an artist. And yeah, I think my work's good. Do you think some of that comes from people thinking that they should be better than they are faster than they are? Oh, sure. Yeah, because everything's supposed to be immediate gratification. And a lot of the, I don't know, the stuff out there, books and videos and stuff, some of them seem to kind of promise results, fast results. Not all of them. I mean, there's an awful lot of instructional material that's just, hey, here's Here's how I do it. Here's what I've learned. It might be useful to you. But there are, I don't know, there's some push towards like quick and easy, you know, quick and easy art, art in 10 lessons, or, you know, learn to draw in 10 easy lessons or just 10 minutes a day, that kind of thing. And I think because so much of our lives sort of falsely offer that promise, so many other things do, it's kind of easy to get into the habit of of wanting that kind of immediate gratification. But I've been so tempted to write a book or a video or something called, you know, agonizing how to make art that takes your whole life and it's totally agonizing or something, <laughs> something the opposite of quick and easy because it's not quick. It's not quick. And it, and you don't just arrive somewhere. Okay. Now I'm an artist. Now I'm an accomplished artist. It's just an ongoing thing. If you're paying attention. I'm just trying so hard not to just laugh really hard on this end, um, because yes to all of that. Well, along those same lines, how important it, is it then as an artist to get comfortable with the discomfort of not knowing what's going to happen? You must be inside my head. Um, I mean, I was just going to sort of add to that, that it's fun if you kind of change your orientation and your expectations so that that discomfort and not knowing is fun rather than agonizing. Because if you expect a finished piece at the end of your session, that's putting a lot of pressure on it. And then when you don't finish the piece or you don't have a piece that you like, at the end of your session, then you have failed. And that adds to the self-criticism. So that can be just a whole cyclical thing. So if you change your, your goals and your expectations to things that are much more realistic, like, oh yeah, I can make marks for 30 minutes without the finished piece being kind of the holy grail, then you have more fun because you take the pressure off. You make more discoveries because you do all kinds of stuff you wouldn't do if you felt the pressure to make a finished good piece. Yeah, you really do have to make friends with that discomfort. 
And that takes practice too, because we're so accustomed to kind of avoiding discomfort. What is the biggest misconception you run into with your students who want to paint abstractly? I don't know if this is among students or people who have less art background than my students, because my students generally are pretty sophisticated in, in their work and in their practice and they're thinking about it. But one misconception is that abstract is easier than representational work, but that's like, who cares? That doesn't seem to me all that significant. But the other misconception is exactly what you brought up, that once you kind of learn how to do it and you find your own style, then it will be easier or then it will be easy. And I, <laughs> I might be guilty myself of chasing that rainbow. I mean, just thinking, oh, yeah, I just, oh, if I could just get this 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 thing out, then I can make a bunch more of them. And the truth is I can't, you know, like in my, any of my explorations, I think, oh yeah, oh, this is, I'm on a roll and I'll just make 10 more of those and can't do it. So yeah, there is this myth of the artist who has found her style, has found her voice and she just shows up at the studio and bangs out masterpiece after masterpiece. If it gets that easy, you're not doing it right. I mean, that's just my, I mean, if you're banging out paintings and you know how to paint them, like you know how they're going to turn out when you start, then it's a different activity. That's like production painting. It's like, it's more like a craft where you've learned the skill of doing it really well. And each one is going to be a little bit different, but you know how to do it. And that is not to discraft. I mean, I started out as a potter and and then I started painting on pottery and I was doing the same designs over and over again. I knew how they would turn out. And still there was kind of a joy in the just perfecting that design, perfecting that painting on the pottery. But that, that's a very different activity than making fine art where you don't know where it's going to come out. It's more about the exploration and the it's sort of like soul searching, but I don't mean to be that kind of morose um, it's kind of like fine, a continual discovery of what's in there. I should have warned you that this is all going to be very deep, Jane. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. Thank you. Where in your process, and let's say you're, you know on some level that you might want to turn this into a, a finished painting, either for a show or a series, where in your process do you really think about design and how conscious are you of choosing one thing and then creating a painting around that thing. At the end. Yeah. I was just thinking about this today because I know some people talk about design right at the beginning of a painting. Like, oh, let's decide where the visual weight is going to be. And they usually do that with values, like where are the dark values, the mid values, the light values, or something like that. And that works for a lot of people. It doesn't work for me at all. I kind of have to go at it and then as an image begins to emerge, I might say, oh, okay, this is where this is going. And then just start kind of emphasizing the particular compositional things that are calling me. So I use the term design specifically for things that you are planning ahead and then executing. And having been a production crafts person, freelance designer, and a fine artist, for me, those are three exceptionally different activities, kind of defined by, by process and mindset. So I don't really use the word design in painting. Composition, 
yeah, it's all composition. You throw stuff on a page and it's a composition. But I start thinking about and paying attention to compositional stuff for a potential finished piece at the end, like probably the second last layer <laughs> or something like that. And I was thinking about this earlier because, you know, so many people start at the beginning. I was thinking what maybe that would be kind of an interesting class to say, OK, let's let's do composition backwards or upside down where we don't even look at it until we've got 10 layers on the piece. But then I thought, you know, calling a workshop that sort of assumes people are starting with composition. And I don't know if people are or not. So it seemed a little presumptuous. I took a class from you, an online class from you several years ago that broke down composition into sort of some of the basics. It was a basic composition class. Could you talk to us about some of the basic compositions And then a follow-up to that, do you find it useful when someone is just starting out, is it useful to go in with a plan and see it through? Uh, Boy, that's a good question. I think that composition class that you took, I probably did maybe seven years ago. It was a while. So like my ideas about composition have certainly evolved. And so they're at a different place. But I think some compositional formats are useful for beginners. Like, I'm going to use a grid as a format. Okay. But then that's not nearly enough. (laughs) It's like, well, what am I exploring within that format? So yeah, I think in that class, I have it as a downloadable class now. And there's a lesson where we're using the grid as a format and we're exploring size of elements and we're working in a kind of monochromatic scheme. So we're trying to like, we're not doing color contrast because we're working monochromatically. We don't have to worry about the format because that's a given. And so what we get to pay attention to is little teeny elements and great big elements and medium-sized elements. I haven't looked at that class in a little while, so I think I have that right, but there might be some other aspects to that lesson. But I think in that, in a beginner class like that, that's like beginner composition, it's not necessarily for beginner painters, kind of isolating compositional issues by establishing the givens, establishing the constants, and then limiting the variables. And format is one of the things that's that can be a constant that's very useful. Composition, a little bit to your language analogy, feels like this intangible thing at first. So how does a beginner get stronger at something that is pretty intangible? I think by learning to see and articulate what they see. In my book, abstract painting, the elements of visual language. I really try to kind of articulate visual language. And that's what composition is. It's just the stuff that's there on the page or the canvas. And my handholds for seeing that are mostly in terms of contrast. And that can be subtle contrast all the way to dramatic contrast. And so I try to articulate the stuff First, the elements, and then this principle of contrast. So size of elements. Do you see all the same size? Do you see big ones, little ones? Color, is everything the same color? Do you have a lot of different colors? Do you have limited palette? Quality of line? Value is a big one. Another contrast that I like looking at is like flatness of color and depth or texture. So if you have a piece that has beautiful texture and transparency and depth all over. You love all the beautiful parts of it, but somehow it's not a strong image. One thing you can consider is providing some contrast. So how about a little flat space in there? 
just try it. It's just kind of a handhold. Like if something's working and it is singing to you and your piece is just awesome and you can't say why, but it just is, then just be grateful and enjoy your piece and don't question it. But it's when you're working on something or it's getting close, you know, you're 10 layers in and um, you're not sure what to do next. You can look for sameness and difference. And I find that just a really useful tool. I don't know if everyone else does, but I find it really useful. So in that book, I start out by kind of describing elements as I see them and then ways that things can contrast. So I call the chapter on composition, I call it the mechanics of composition because it's not a set of rules about composition. And I think a lot of people think of composition as kind of a set of, of rules that here's how it should be. And I think it's whatever you want it to be as long as it's your like aware of it and seeing it and making a conscious decision that, okay, yeah, this is it. With color, where do you see artists running into problems? I've started doing more color mixing in my workshops. And I'm a bit surprised when people haven't done a ton of color mixing on their own. And they seem to have the idea that there's some like correct way to do it. And they haven't learned it rather than just experimenting. I mean, you got all this paint, just mix it up. So I've come up with some ways to... To practice that, to, you know, you got these two colors in white. Let's see what, what you can do with all of that. So I guess, yeah, color mixing is seems to be kind of a challenge. And I'm, I'm a little bit surprised at that just because it seems like a natural. It seems like you would just fool around with it in your studio. And it's a real cheap, easy way to find out an awful lot about your materials. Do you think people... Because you can buy every color under the sun, do you think people first buy all the colors and then realize later that they don't actually know how to mix anything and step back and limit their palette a little bit more? I'm not sure, because some people kind of start out feeling like they should mix all their colors and they bring only primaries and black and white. It's like, ah, bring all your colors. Because, I mean, for me, like, I want all my colors out of the bottle, out of the tube, and I want to be able to modify every single one of them. So... I tend to just get a whole mess of colors. And if there's a color that I use a lot and I've been mixing it, but it comes out of a tube, I'm going to buy the tube. So I don't think there's any merit to mixing your own colors for the sake of it, but it's really good to know how to modify things. Like, okay, I'm looking at this painting that's got all these beautiful, bright, transparent colors, for example. I want to inject a little really subtle contrast here. So maybe I'll take one of those beautiful, bright colors and add just a tiny bit of gray to it or something to just mute it down a tiny bit and then put some of that in there and look at that kind of subtle contrast. And just kind of having that kind of ability to mix colors on a whim is pretty valuable, especially, I don't know, like not especially, but I really enjoy mixing neutral colors because people think of neutral, well, I think of neutral as grays and beige. But all the grays and beige and muted colors you can get is just a fascinating whole world of kind of, and I think I think they're kind of more sophisticated colors than kind of bright luminous primaries. And so being able to create a whole spectrum of those is just great. Well, and some of what I hear you talking about is just the freedom that comes with deeply knowing your materials. That there's a difference that happens in painting. When you look at something and say, I see a problem, I think it has to do with color, but I have no idea how to mix the color, 
versus being able to, in one intuitive breath, say, I see the problem, I know it's a color, and then lay down that color that you just mixed. And then mm -hmm. march forward is such a different way of experiencing working than the jerkiness that happens when you're a beginner. I think you're right. Yeah. And so I noticed that I have this fluidity with color because I can like imagine the color or, or see a sample of it. It's like, oh, I could mix that in a heartbeat. And that ability, I noticed that a lot of my students struggle with that. And so there's this, oh my God, well, how do I get that color? And that you're right. It makes the, the process a little more jerky, less fluid. Yeah. That kind of fluidity with color is the same with materials, kind of the viscosity and transparency are kind of the main ones, just knowing those. And I'm, you know, I also have students that kind of, just because they haven't been painting as long, like they don't know which color, which of their colors are transparent and which are opaque. And so you will once you've painted more. <laughs> I mean, you can kind of do tests and stuff, but I'm not a big fan of that because it gives you a false sense of knowledge or confidence. Like if you want to test every one of your colors for the, the tinting strength and do the value scales of the tints and the shades, and then sort of test them all for opacity and transparency, and then have these charts up on your wall, it makes your studio look great. I mean, I think those charts are gorgeous, <laughs> but I'm not sure if they really help with the fluidity. Like if you just spent that same time or like do your charts, but then have a realistic expectation of what they represent. They represent reference stuff that you're not really going to use every, every time you want a yellow, you're not going to go to your chart and say, okay, which, which yellow? Okay. I need an opaque one. You know, you really just got to play with your paints. And fortunately that's pretty fun. So yeah, there is the fluidity there. <laughs> Do you think that there's value, again, with learning is the goal, in limiting the variables and getting focused in on the thing you want to learn? So for example, if you want to get better at color, choose a color and just spend time with it? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. I mean, people learn in all different ways and I wouldn't want to prescribe that unless it was for a particular person that I thought would learn that way. Yeah. I think with color, if yeah, just spending time paying attention to it. Maybe take one color at a time. I don't know. I have a couple of color classes online, and I recommend that they not be taken by rank beginners. Because I think when you're a beginner painter, the most important thing is just to paint and paint and paint some more. And then you start getting curious about materials and color and composition and techniques and all that kind of stuff. With some experience under your belt of just painting and running into issues of color, that's a good context to then go maybe take a class or read a book or watch a video and then just try some exercises that focus more on color. But let curiosity lead you. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, put a context there first, get the context in place because you don't sort of learn about color and then learn about composition and then start painting. I mean, I don't think anyone would expect that, but first paint, like those paint and sip classes. Um, <laughs> I mean, I know they get a lot of bad rap from, from real artists, but like if that's, if you want to paint and that's your comfort level of getting started, then it gets you there. It gets you working with paint. It gives you some idea about materials. So what's wrong with that? If you feel more confident to do a less directed practice, get some paints and stick them on paper and see what happens. You know what I mean? Like whatever your comfort level is to get 
your hands into the paint, then that's a good starting place. And then that will generate curiosity about particulars like color or viscosity or certain techniques or composition. So basically, stop thinking about all the things you may or may not know and go find out what you may or may not know through the work. Through the work, yeah. And that curiosity that you mentioned is key. It's absolutely essential because if you're not curious about it and you're just trying to make paintings without being curious about painting, the work will show it when it'll fall flat. What does someone need to learn to paint attitude-wise? Well, there's got to be some reason you want to paint. To me, I mean, it shouldn't be about making finished work and selling it. And I don't think that really is. I mean, people want to paint because they look at paintings and they love the paintings and think, oh, I wish I could do that. I don't think anyone thinks, yeah, I want to be a painter because I could sell a lot of paintings. You know what I mean? So for an attitude, just expect it to take a while and be curious about what the materials will do in your hands. Teachers are great. Classes are great. Great to take a workshop once in a while. But you don't want to be a slave to that either. I mean, you also just need some time to paint. Like some of my students are workshop junkies and they've earned it. You know, they want to take workshops and they're perfectly comfortable with the idea that they're just going to take a lot of workshops and they don't have any other particular, like they don't have any professional artist goals or anything like that. And they learn a lot of different things and experiment a lot and kind of find their own way with a lot of different kinds of techniques and approaches. So if that's what you're doing, that's one thing. If you really want to delve deeper into who you are as an artist, you need to also, between workshops, give yourself time to struggle. Give yourself time to be uncomfortable. Give yourself time to, you know, you go take a workshop, you learn some stuff, you go try some things on your own, see where it takes you. And it can take you down dead ends that are kind of frustrating. And I think that time's important and those experiences are important. So yeah, just kind of having realistic expectations about it's not all fun all the time. It can be frustrating. And that that frustration is, it's an essential part of the process. One thing I have kind of in my back pocket for times like that, I have a few practices that are just like, here's busy work I can do when I'm a little frustrated, or here's something I can do to feel productive when I'm not inspired. So having a few tricks up your sleeve that way can help. Yeah, just allowing it to take some time and trick yourself, if necessary, into generating the curiosity that's necessary. Would you share with us one or two of those things you do when you're not feeling it, but know that you need to keep working? I make collage papers. So I paint on newspaper, deli paper, or cheap drawing paper, whatever. Oh, God, I started this thing recently. It's so fun. I started making collage hearts. And... (laughs) And they're really fun because I'm trying to make them kind of as wonky as I can. And uh, I mean, they started out just like, let's make some hearts because maybe that would be fun. And then it was. But then I started like, okay, within this heart format, let me play with positive space and negative space and some ambiguity so that you kind of see the heart, but it's just barely there or something like that. So, you know, I found a way to kind of explore some abstract visual territory within that shape. And the heart's great because it's such a recognizable shape and it's pretty universal. And I have until recently forbidden its use in my classes. (laughs) I say, we're working on shapes and someone comes up with a heart shape. It's like, no, we're not doing that. 
unless it's really interesting and kind of idiosyncratic. So I thought, well, let me take one of my forbidden things and play with it. So that's, yeah, now I can always go back to hearts. And they're little, they're like five by seven. So yeah, those are two things that I, that I can do. Do you think there is benefit from making yourself finish a piece? Probably for some people. For me, it just, no. If I try to finish a piece, it, it will just defy me. It will say, forget it. Nope. Mm -mm. But when I don't try to finish pieces, and I always work on a bunch of pieces at once, my most fun experiences with finishing pieces are I got a piece, bunch of pieces in the works. I leave the studio at the end of the day. I go back the next morning to work on them. And one of them will jump out and say, no, I'm done. Don't touch me. And then another one will say, yeah, I'm, I'm close. So be careful. And the others will say, oh, yeah, pour it on. So I kind of just have to see the pieces with a fresh eye to know if they're done. And so if I'm working on a piece and forcing it, I can't see it anymore. And so it doesn't get finished. And it goes back in the drawer of works in process. And it might come out later and say, oh, yeah, I'm done. But I can't force it because it'll show. It'll look self-conscious. It'll look forced. That's how I work. But, you know, some people can make themselves finished pieces and make gorgeous work. So in your opinion, if someone wants to get really good at painting, where do you suggest they focus? Paint. Yeah, I don't have any any kind of universal piece of advice. I'd say paint, you know, get the colors you like and play with them. You know, it's great to watch some video, if, if some video tutorials or whatever you need to get started. But just to paint a lot. I think there's a lot to be said for just doing a lot of work. And you have to make a lot of bad work too. I mean, you have to make a lot of bad work and allow yourself to make ugly paintings to get to the stuff that that is really you. You have to get past all the copying of your teachers and the copying of your teachers as an important step. But you'll know when you start to see work that is really yours. And so just, yeah, I say where to start, where to focus, just doing a lot of work. Well, Jane, thank you so much for joining us today. You can find more about Jane, her workshops, her videos, her books at her website, janedaviesstudio.com, as well as on Instagram and Facebook. And we'll link to all of that in the show notes. So thank you so much, Jane. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for joining us this week. Check out the show notes, including vocab and links to Jane's classes at learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode three. See you in two weeks. Happy painting.